does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 122 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, guitarist Joel Hoekstra, I just want to remind you about the Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. If you're looking for a little bit of extra Mistress Carrie in your life, well, get yourself a backstage pass. You get access to exclusive blog posts and photos. Discount codes for shopping in the online store at mistresscarry.com. Exclusive access to free concert tickets, a monthly private live stream, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash mistresscarry or click the Patreon logo at mistresscarry.com. My guest this week, guitar player Joel Hoekstra, is one of the most in-demand guitar players in rock and roll. It's amazing the guy has time to sleep. He's the guitar player for Whitesnake. He's also preparing to go out on the road once again with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He's also the guitar player for Cher. He's going to be guesting on shows with Brandon Gibbs. He's a guitar instructor online. Plus, he's a husband and a father. And in his spare time, he's got his own band, Joel Hoekstra's 13. Like I said, he's busy. And I got him to sit still long enough to talk about the upcoming Trans-Siberian Orchestra tour, his songwriting, how he passed the time through COVID, what it's like to do a Vegas residency and a show on Broadway. We talked about his now infamous footwear, his parenting, where his guitar tone comes from. And being a native of Chicago, you know we were going to end up talking about sports. Joel is an amazingly talented guitar player and obviously so well-respected in the industry that literally everybody wants him playing guitar for them. So I was super excited to get on his busy schedule and be able to sit down and talk about everything he's got going on, especially the Trans-Siberian Orchestra tour that kicks off in November. With New England dates scheduled on November 23rd at the Mohegan Sun Arena, November 25th at the SNHU Arena in Manchester, New Hampshire, and two shows at the DCU Center in Worcester on November 26th. You can get the details on all of those shows on the events calendar at mistresscarry.com. So allow me to introduce you to Joel Hoekstra.
Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hello, Joel. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for hanging out with me today. Yeah, likewise. Right back at you. Are you in rehearsals for TSO right now? What are you doing today? No, not yet. I'm at home uh, just, you know, working on music as always. Uh, that's pretty much a daily process with me. So uh, getting ready to do an acoustic run with my friend Brandon Gibbs coming up and getting ready to do Rating the Rock Vault in Vegas for a couple weeks. So working on that stuff a bit, uh, working on my album. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a lot got a lot up in the air right now. You seem like one of those guys that doesn't sit still very well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to move forward every day. That's, uh, that's the mental process, I guess, that's gotten me this far. So I try to keep rolling with that and make sure that every day is productive. And, um, you know, some days are, are more productive than others, of course, but it's, I have a hard time getting to the end of the day and going like, I didn't get anything done today. Yeah, I uh, I've talked to a lot of people that have done those Vegas residencies and you've done them a couple times. You did it with Cher. You got another one coming up. To me, it seems like being productive in Vegas for me would be impossible. But the artists that go there seem to love the structure of it. How do you concentrate in Vegas? Oh, I don't have any problems with that these days. I mean, my going out to the bar days are long gone. So, I mean, as far as, you know, and I've never really been uh, a gambler per se or been that much into that. So it's it's pretty easy for me, actually. I mean, the, the share residencies, having three shows a week, I mean, it was like having four days off a week in Las Vegas. It's, uh, you know, um, for me, it was an opportunity to get other things done. Um, just work on music more and try to be productive. And also, even when you're productive on days like that, you end up having a lot of free time to just enjoy, do things like lay in the sun, you know. <laughs> Lie in the sun, lay in the sun, I don't know. Whatever it is, Whatever. I'm not going to correct your grammar. Okay. <laughs> well, you were supposed to be out on the road with White Snake right now, right? And obviously, plans changed. Plans changed. <laughs> You got to uh, you got to ebb and flow, I guess, in rock and roll and be prepared to kind of figure it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, moments like this are exactly why I keep a lot of things going. 
um, that way it's not just like all my my eggs are in one basket and when that basket goes you know you're like oh I have nothing so um, I'm still extremely busy right now um, so you know in addition to what I told you is coming up my, my run with with Brandon Gibbs I managed to book to fill that time having seven shows in eight days right around the bend here um, the two weeks of Raiding the Rock Vault, I have a few shows with Broadway's Rock of Ages band. Um, during that time, I'm teaching virtually, I'm working on my album. So um, there's a lot going on musically. I mean, that's like with the cancellation. Um, so I just make sure that I stay busy and that's the only way I really know how to make things work uh, as far as the music business is just working hard and, and hoping for the best. It's, it still doesn't even guarantee anything, you know, but um, I think as, as long as you're trying and working hard to move forward, it gives you a chance. Broadway seems like such a hectic schedule. It, it seems like such a breakneck pace that you barely have time to breathe. Um, yeah, I mean, this with the Broadway's Rock of Ages band thing is more or less us just going out and playing the full length versions of those songs at private engagements a lot. And sometimes it's an actual public gig. But um, uh, so it's not really the Broadway show, but I did do the show on Broadway for basically six years. Um, and yeah, I mean, eight shows a week is like, you know, it's a, it's a grind. It's a little bit like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day <laughs> where, you know, you wake up and, and days are very, very similar and your work is very similar. Um, I will say that TSO has it beat for the, the, the work because they do eight shows a week plus you're traveling every day. So it's like you're, you're in a different city. So for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, having two shows a day and each one's in a different city, um, you, that, it, that ha has Broadway beat in terms of the workload and the difficulty level. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's nothing to scoff at. Eight shows a week, no matter how you cut it, is hard work. And especially when you're doing that much traveling, it makes your need for a fantastic crew be it's even more important because they've got to be able to handle the schedule and the travel just as much as the performers. Yeah. Especially with TSO. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. They, they have it orchestrated down to, you know, the nanosecond, those guys, it's like we're, there's elements of the stage being broken down while we're still playing. <laughs> You'll hear them underneath you go, oh, they're, taking, they're already taking apart part of the stage, you know, like some of the stuff that they can get out of there and, and beginning loadout. Because, I mean, if you realize that we're coming down off an evening show often at about 1030 at night and we need to be in the next city and set up and playing by three in the afternoon the next day. And if you've seen anybody that's seen TSO knows the size of that stage and the setup is incredible. It's massive. So these guys have it down. Um, they, they get an opportunity to kind of rehearse it. And uh, the, the loadout thing is it's, it's nothing to, you know, uh, nothing to take lightly. Those guys are super focused. Everything goes exactly where it needs to be. There's no trying to figure out, hey, where does this go? You know, everything has a place. And um, so, yeah, the crew at TSO are absolutely amazing. And they do their best to bring back people year after year because it's a it's a very difficult gig to break in new people if they don't know what's going on. It's not just kind of like a, hey, come on in and figure it out as it goes kind of gig. Now you got to carry your own weight for sure from day one. Yeah. 
I try to go to the show every year. It's become kind of a family tradition. And my sister and I and my aunt and my mom went last year. And we had really good seats. And my aunt and my mom wouldn't stop talking about your shoes. And I'm like, out of everything in the show, they're like, did you see his shoes? They are awesome. <laughs> yeah, those uh, those shoes need their own Twitter account. I've never had a pair of shoes get so much attention in my life. I was just talking about this last night. I was like, it's actually unbelievable how much attention those shoes get. It's uh, ridiculous that you could be such an amazing musician with all of the techs and the pyro and the lights and all of that stuff. And you've got people in the audience analyzing the smallest details of your performance, like your shoes. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not in the minority with that. I You would not believe how many comments I got on that particular pair of shoes. Now, they're starting to get a little worn because I've, I've worn them for basically two TSO tours, and I can't find a new pair of those anywhere. So we're going to have to see, see how that all shakes out. I might have to either just keep wearing them and try to keep people happy or disappoint people. <laughs> Um, can we talk about um, your musical career from the beginning? I know you're a Chicago guy. Yeah, I grew up in the Burbs, Orland Park specifically. I was just there a couple weeks ago and finally tried really good deep dish pizza. It was delicious. Nice. Um, do you come from a musical family? Where does this musical ability come from? Yeah, my parents were classical musicians, so they had me going at a young age, and um, I wasn't all that into it, you know. I was like most little boys. I just was like wanted to play baseball and hang out with my friends. And um, But eventually the rock thing crept in, you know, ACDC for me, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Back in Black um, was really specifically the, the cassette, I'll say it, and aged myself, was... <laughs> It was really the cassette that made me go like, wow, this is what I want to do. This, I like that. I like this a lot. I talked to a lot of guitar players. I'm not musically inclined. It doesn't run in my family. I don't have the talent. My my clarinet days in the marching band are long gone. Um, but I talked to a lot of guitar players about guitar tone and kind of where you think your tone comes from. What would you say to that? Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is what you hear, your ears hear what you want it to sound like. So there are lots of ways to achieve, you know, the, like certain like EQ, like if something's too bright or too dark to either change your pickup configuration, like how you're playing on the guitar or the EQ settings on your amp at the time, or, um, you know, gosh, all the way down to where you place the mic on the on the cabinet so i think a lot of it is just your ears and um and there are some formulaic things as far as like what frequencies agree with guitar in a mix and um understanding being able to listen to it and go okay that's that might sound good on its own but it's not going to sound good in a mix because of certain frequencies and um, but I mean, let's say your ears, your hands, there's a lot of it that's that, you know, just being able to, and that, but I think the hand thing, a lot of that is the ears because you learn to play things certain ways because you're hearing what needs to happen to the tone. So do you still uh, have your first guitar? I don't. It's a bummer. I, I sold my first guitar after playing for like 
maybe it was not even a year and got my second guitar. So, um, yeah, that's a bummer. And, and I think I may have run across it at one point in time because I taught at an area my my mom at the time, I was obviously very young when I was playing, you know, I was 11, maybe 12 or something. Um, she sold that guitar to somebody that lived in this uh, more western suburb. And as it turned out, I used to teach then kind of in that area years later. And I think I was probably about 21, 22, something like that. And some a student came in and they had that same exact brand of guitar. And they had said they had bought it in that city where my mom had sold it to somebody at a, at a store, at a music store. And I thought, I bet they sold it on consignment there. And that's probably my first guitar. And there was all kinds of fretware on it. But there was really no way for me to verify it, you know like whether or not it was my first guitar. So it was like, what am I going to do with this? So I just offered to buy this guitar from this person randomly and not ever really know if it's my first guitar. That I, I, but I may have run across it. Is ACDC the first riff or the first song that you finally were able to master on that guitar? No, the first riff that my teacher gave me was Paranoid. Um, just like the, the verse riff, um, Black Sabbath. And uh, my parents had told me I could get an amp if I showed that I was dedicated to this and serious. So I didn't get an amp yet. My The guy at the music store had said, just you can plug it into the auxiliary input of your stereo. So, which is exactly what I did. So I plugged the quarter inch cable into the auxiliary input of the home stereo and turned the home stereo all the way up so like the entire neighborhood could hear me playing the paranoid riff yes i'm sure they were quite pleased yeah i bet your classically trained parents were very happy about the black sabbath blaring from the living room uh yeah i mean i think that uh they probably had different a different vision in their mind when i said i wanted to play guitar but in the end it all kind of works out and they're they're perfectly happy with um, you know the fact that i got into what I got into and that it was music in a way for them. When you're sitting down, you know, on your off time or getting ready for a tour, writing new music, how does your process work? Are you sitting down to write for a specific project? Are you always kind of coming up with, with riffs and banking them? How does it work for you? It can be different with each one. There's times where I'll write specifically for something, and then there's times where I have things that I've written that are just around, and I go, well, that that would work for this. Um, so, you know, like the iconic project that I just finished, uh, I was tasked with writing the guitar riffs, and I sat down and did very systematically and did like one a day. I was like, just every day you're going to do one the way michael sweet wanted those was unarranged if that makes sense so like a pre you know maybe like a intro riff and a potential verse riff pre-chorus chorus bridge but that's it and then he would chop it up and arrange it and then he was actually the one to track rhythms first oddly enough so it was like i had written these rhythms and then he recorded them and by the time they came back to me he had like added or subtracted where needed to form a song. And then it was like a really weird thing where I was like re-recording my own rhythms as played by somebody else to be really tight with it. So it was an interesting process. That's the way he did it with George Lynch. 
um, on their records together. So, um, that, so, but I guess if, I'm sorry for being so long-winded. No, answer, I want you to be long-winded. The, so go ahead. The, the, the answer is sometimes you write specifically for something like I did that with iconic in that situation, just very like, all right, once a day, sit down, let's pick a different tempo. Let's pick a different feel, write something there. Boom. You know, and, and get it out there. The guitar riff thing for me comes really, um, easy, um, it's more or less the writing the the melody and the lyrics and making it a good like full song that's the tricky part for me like to make sure you know that to me is much harder than coming up with a cool guitar riff have you ever written something and been so excited about it and then realized oh shit it's this song that's already like to me Happens all the time. Yeah, aren't yeah, all yeah, of the yeah, good yeah. riffs gone? Like, I don't understand how you can constantly come up with new, fresh ideas. Yeah, it happens all the time where there's, um, you know, unintended similarities to things. And you go, oops, sorry about that, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, that that's just part of rock. Rock is, in general, unless you want to sound very progressive, there are some constraints on it in terms of what you're going to be writing. A lot of it's going to be in 4-4 four, four time. A lot of it's going to have a straight eighth feel. Uh, rhythmically and um, you know there's a certain combination of chords that work the best and heavy modulations and things things like that tend to turn people off so um, you know there's there's a lot of similarities between rock songs and inevitably you're bound to come across ones that have you know are very similar do you like to write acoustic or electric better either one I mean I really love playing acoustic guitar um, I would say my career lately has been calling a lot more for electric, but I definitely enjoy playing acoustic guitar a lot. And I could see myself down the road um, being more focused on that um, and writing some more type of stuff like that, where it's just like me playing acoustic. Everybody had to find a way to keep occupied during COVID. They sold more guitars per day during the height of COVID than I think at any other time in the history of the world. Uh, how important was it for you to be locked down with your guitar? Um, it was an interesting process, all of it. Just kind of, you know, once I realized it was going to be a minute, uh, the year before I'd been gone too much. I mean, I was on the road 200 and, gosh, I need to think about the actual number again now. But it was like 285 days, I think, wow. out of the year. So... I was on the road a lot. That was juggling White Snake and Cher and Trans Siberian Orchestra for that year. It was a total grind. And so the initial thing with COVID was like, all right, cool. You know, I could just kind of hang out and, and be dad and just chill out and like not worry so much about it. And when things start up, I'll be back to it. But um, obviously, when it really looked like, hey, wait a minute, this is going to drag on. Uh, I started doing the virtual teaching thing and took on like 30 students a week. I thought was a good number to kind of go with. And then uh, really added in doing that whole cameo thing. So those were really like the way I was like, making a living per se, right? Teaching and doing the cameo thing and doing sessions for people. Everybody was recording. So lots and lots of people want me to do like a guest solo and play like a solo on their track or whatever. 
So lots of that. Um, did, did a lot of those quarantine videos, whatever they call, you know, the collab videos. There was a lot of that stuff that I got done to enhance my digital presence <laughs> at some point. But, um, you know, I did some cool stuff with that. I got to, you know, play with some people on those that I'd been kind of waiting to do something with in my life. You know, Mike Portnoy and I had known each other and we're both in a million things, but we'd never actually done anything together. So that was cool, um, doing something with Mike and, and uh, Arnell Pineda from Journey and I, we'd been friends for a long time, so having that, you know, doing something with him and my friend Dino Jalusic, who's an amazing singer, doing something with him, you know, even Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden, we did a little something together with Jen Majura from Evanescence, and Billy Sheehan definitely belongs on that list, somebody like, like had known Billy, and but we'd never done anything together, never, never even jammed, and it was like, all right, let's see if we can, you know, cross some of these people off the list of like people that I've actually finally done something with. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, it ended up being like, you know, just another one of those situations where you try to stay busy and you try and make the best of it. Um, despite the limitations, you know, and, uh, I mean, I, I really feel like I did that. I worked extremely hard during COVID, like extremely hard. When you're, in the public eye in the way that you are and you have a job where the lion's share of the public thinks you're really cool, but you go home and you're dad. How uncool are you as a dad, according to the kids? Yeah, I mean, probably pretty uncool. <laughs> Realistically, I think that that, that fluctuates and, and varies, but um, in general, you know, that's just not, it's their interest isn't necessarily in like what I'm doing. And, and, you know, my daughter is young enough that she just hasn't seen a whole lot of it. So, um, especially with COVID hitting, I mean, she's only six. So with COVID hitting, you, you know, she hasn't seen me on a stage since she was three. So it doesn't mean all that much to her right now. It's way more important that I like, you know, play with her and stuff like that. So, it seemed to be a welcome thing for a lot of touring musicians that they actually got forced to be home a little more and got to spend quality time when they normally, like you were just saying, would be too busy and on the road all the time. Yeah, I think at first, like I said, I took the couple months to just kind of be like, all right, let's just, you know, not panic and hang out. And let's, you know, I, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of COVID when everybody somehow magically thought it was going to last like two, three weeks um, you know, that was, that was where my head was for a little bit. But then I, once I realized I was like, okay, well, I have not worked hard my whole life to like, just let everything slip away over the next like two years or whatever. So I'm going to start working hard and make sure that I'm focused during this and moving forward. So I mean, that, that really is the, the bottom line with music in general is you're always going to be facing, um, like a headwind throughout it is always going to be like all these obstacles that you have to overcome and so it's more it's so cheesy it's like about like what you can you know all the things that you can kind of withstand to kind of keep going more than anything there's a uh, question that i never would have asked anyone but geezer butler and i talked about it recently and now i have to ask everyone because he told me that he names his dogs and cats after gangster rappers and now i have to ask you what your animals names are uh, 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 we have two cats, uh, Dundee and Josie, um, neither of which were named by us. It just kind of came from the shelter with those names. So, um, 
Yeah, so that's the story there. <laughs> I not, you know, I was, I was, I tried to get Dundee named Rizzo after Anthony Rizzo because I'm from being from the Chicago area, big Cubs fan, and um, you know, Rizzo finally won a World Series for us. So, uh, but you know, I thought that was a good cat name, but it didn't pan out. I think the kids, you know, but by the time they got it and they said, this is the name of the cat from the shelter, then that was the name of the cat. And that was that. So. Here in Boston, there's a lot of big poppy animals. So I totally, I totally get it. Um, before I let you go, I, I want to talk about the craft of songwriting because Again, it's something I, I can't do and I'm fascinated by. Can you give me an example of a song that you think is perfectly crafted or a great example of perfect songwriting from any artist, any genre, but but to break it down as to why you think it's put together so good? Um, no, I mean, that would be impossible. There's so many different of ways to write a good song and there's so many different types of good songs that that's impossible to summarize um <clears throat> i think you know that just depends on what your opinion of what a good song is as well i mean there there's just you know there's a lot out there i would just encourage people um to to do it you know there's a lot of musicians out there people that feel like they have limitations and I think it's, you know, it's just time spent doing things. That's, you know, there's a lot of people that complain that they have no talent or that they're, you know, they can't do it because they're not talented enough. It's like that. The only thing that ever matters with that is how much time you've spent doing it. That's the bottom line. If right now from today forward, you spend six to eight hours a day, like learning to be a songwriter and writing songs, you know, without a doubt within a certain period of time you would have you'd be writing songs it's it's just um, there's so much emotion and glamour attached to music that people often forget it's just like anything else it's like you know it's, so there's a there's how many hours you've spent doing it and that's when you get good at things you know and i have been writing songs since i was probably 13 years old so I've been at it a, a fairly long time and, um, you know, I, depending on people's definitions of good songs, you know, uh, I, I can either fit that description or not for them. Um, you know, there, there's, there's also, there's also whether or not you think formulaic stuff is cool or non-formulaic, if it's just organic and different and unique and, um, so I, I tend to like all of it. You know, I, I, I see beauty and all that stuff. When I was growing up, I worked in my parents, my family's Italian bakery, and the holidays were the busiest time, obviously, of the entire year. And so by the time actually celebrating the holidays came around, we were all exhausted. Do you celebrate the holidays in March? How long does it take you to recover to actually be able to unwind after the breakneck TSO? Do they leave the tree up for you when you get home? Because the the the, the tour you're celebrating and and performing while everyone else is on holiday. No, I you know I've read a lot of people that talk about like you know recuperation time after TSO, but I you know honestly I have never needed that. I've just I finished the tour and I I usually many years have played a New Year's Eve gig with the Rock of Ages band, a completely different set of music and 
and just keep right on going. And like the next day I'm teaching or about when I did Rock of Ages would be back at Rock of Ages. I, to me, the taking the time off thing was always kind of like, look, there's going to be a time in, in the music career where you're going, I can't get work. Um, things are like I can't get arrested right now. So when things are happening, I do it all the time. TSO has got dates at Mohegan, at the DCU Center in Worcester, the SNHU Arena in Manchester. When you come to the Boston area, do you ever get enough time to actually enjoy it? And what do you like to do? Um, I've had a lot of days off in Boston more with Whitesnake um, than I've had... um, and, you know, I, as I said, I'm kind of a hang in guy. I, I remember walking around a lot. What's the, the, um, what's the lake with the swan boats and. Oh, in the, the commons. Yeah. 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 I definitely walked around there quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> I've walked around like the Cambridge area quite a bit in the past. Um, you know, the Harvard area, that type of stuff. I, was, I mean, I've spent a decent amount of time in Boston, enough to know it's a terrible driving city. I hate driving in Boston. Oh, my God. <laughs> I live in New York City, and I think people in Boston drive like psychopaths. So We do, but we know yeah. where we're going, and you're in the way. <laughs> yes, pretty much, yes. Well, plus you had, for a long time, you had a built-in tour guide. I actually went to high school with Michael Devin. We grew up in the same hometown. Oh, right on. Okay, cool. So when yeah. you were in town, you always had somebody that could at least show you around. And the Devin should have been driving you around anyway. You shouldn't have been driving. Yeah, I went to Fenway. Well, no, no, this is like years ago. I mean, I've been through Boston many, many times, obviously. So I remember having a gig there and driving there from New York. And that's happened. I feel like I've driven to Boston, uh, you know, numerous times over the years. And um, so I, I did go to Fenway. One of the times, the uh, last time Whitesnake was there, we went to a Red Sox game. And that was cool. I, it was really nice to, um, to, to finally see Fenway. It's a beautiful park. Um, <clears throat> so that was, that was great fun going there. I'm trying to think of, you know, what else I've done in Boston. It's, you know, I've traveled so much and kicked around so much. The, the majority of times though, what you see is your hotel room and the inside of the arena. You know, I've definitely spent a lot of time inside TD bank. Like I know, <laughs> I know, I know TD bank very well. Like I could be like, Oh yeah, I know this. I know the dressing rooms. I could tell you what they, they look like right now. I, I know them. Um, very important question before you go. You've been mm-hmm. living in New York City a long time. Please tell me that they didn't make you a Yankees fan. They did not make me a Yankees yes! fan. Yes! I, I had a minute where I toyed around with, like, maybe I'll make them my secondary team because they're AL and the Cubs are NL. But, um, yeah, in the end, it didn't stick. <laughs> you know, that I think the Yankees, I don't know, it's it's – it's it's hard to be emotionally attached to them for me. Any of the New York teams, I, you know, there's certain things like, you know, the Knicks, I could never, never, ever, ever be a Knicks fan. After the Bulls-Knicks series of the 90s, there's like not a chance ever I'm rooting for the Knicks. That just this will not ever happen. But um, uh, the Yankees thing, I thought, yeah, it's safe. Hate the Mets. I mean, come on. Doesn't everybody? Know? Yeah, hate the Mets. Um, 2015, they knocked the Cubs out of the NLCS. That's the most recent reason to hate them. But I hate them um, for more than that. I hate them for 1985 
I hate them for battling the Cubs in 1984. Um, yeah, so yeah, I could never, I never really do the. You know, Chicago's a really big sports town. It's kind of like Boston's a big sports town too. That's what I was going to say. Usually, <laughs> Chicago fans and Boston fans get along really well in their common hatred of New York. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a big difference between my New York friends and my Chicago friends. Like when I touch base with my Chicago friends, the first thing they talk is sports every single time. It's like, all right, before we get into family and, and music and everything like that, we need to talk about, you know, how the teams are doing this year. It's like you go through go through that and then you start to talk about life. So. Well, it was, it was really nice to talk to you about sports and everything else today. All the tickets for the TSO tour are on sale right now. And like I said, it's family tradition for me to go every year. I love the show. I, I love that there's certain elements of it that come back every year. But I also am fascinated how you guys always seem to make it fresh every year as well. Yeah, I think, you know, Paul O'Neill, his vision was always bigger and better as far as the production goes. So we're always trying to outdo ourselves. And of course, there's always going to be new music involved, um, especially in the back half of the show. Um, so, yeah, I think, you you know, you see something that's like evolving, but uh, never too drastic a change that you don't feel an element of tradition. Thank you so much, Joel. It was such a pleasure to meet you and I'll see you in November. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time today. You got it. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye-bye. There he is, the one and only Joel Hoekstra. You can see him out on the road starting in November with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. If you want more details on how to find Joel and his extremely busy schedule and all his projects, just check the show notes of this episode. You'll find all of Joel's links, all of White Snake's links, and all the links for the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You'll find all of my links there as well. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. Every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast gets a playlist that's filled with all my guest music and all the music and artists that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus you get the sit rep. Every weekday, you get all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. And if you got a TSO fan or a Whitesnake fan on your friends list, make sure you're sharing this episode with them as well. You can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee, of course I was walking. But now it's like three miles and no lattes worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me like it's a scheduled activity. This morning my neighbor asked me what I'm doing and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches, as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot. 
How doers get more done.